If, uh, if you're new or if we haven't met before, my name is Tim Cargis, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. And I'm really excited to kick us off into this brand new sermon series that we are calling Out of the Wilderness. So what, what is the wilderness? Well, in nature, it's this uninhabited space, right? It's a, it's a place that humans don't like to dwell. It's usually desolate. It lacks water and life-giving resources. Some of us maybe think about the desert or kind of a barren wasteland. But the largest wilderness area in the world is actually the boreal forest, which stretches over parts of Alaska and Canada and even into Russia. And it's this, uh, it's this massive, cold and snowy and barren landscape. It's the taiga. And so it has, it has very little usable water or food available for humans. And so if you get stuck out in this uh, wilderness, you wouldn't last for very long. Well, in Scripture, the wilderness setting, it often refers to an actual place that people wander through, but sometimes it is used as a metaphor, the wilderness is, to describe kind of a season of hardship or wandering or pain or suffering. Now, uh, I have lived in Nebraska for my entire life, and I have long suffered many Nebraska winters. Um, Summer is my favorite season, and so each January is like the start of a wilderness season for me. So after the family time of vacation and Thanksgiving and Christmas, January kind of forces us to get back into our routines, right, into our rhythms, and it's also super cold, and I'm not a fan of cold weather, and I think I've tried to convince my wife, Alyssa, to move south every year since we've been married. And since we're still living here, you can tell who wins those arguments. So January seemed like the, the perfect time to launch into a series about entering and exiting the wilderness. So how do we, how do we get out of the wilderness? You may be, right now, in the middle of one, of a season of wilderness, of pain, suffering, or wandering, or, or maybe you have just left one, or you're about to enter one. And at some point, all of us deal with a season of the wilderness. So I think it's incredibly helpful that Scripture gives us so many examples of people who have been where we are now and who have gone through the wilderness, and so we get to learn from them. So in the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at people or groups of people in the Bible who have dealt with the wilderness. So every week, we're going to ask four questions. Number one, why did they enter the wilderness? Number two, what did they learn? Number three, what can we learn from their experience? And number four, how did they exit? Or if they didn't exit, why did they remain stuck in the wilderness? And we'll ask questions like, why do we have to go through the wilderness? Where is God when we go through? And why does it take forever, it seems like, to get out? So each week, we're going we're gonna to fill in another piece of the puzzle. So I'd encourage you to join us each Sunday. And uh, D. Roth created this really handy little booklet, and maybe some of you picked that up on your way in. If you didn't, you can grab one of these. And so within this, you have a, a sermon overview as well as a place you can take notes and a place you can look ahead if you want to read scriptures for the upcoming week. Well, this week, we're going to start at the beginning in Genesis 1. And so in Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth, and everything was good. And then in Genesis 2, God creates a place called the Garden of Eden. And so in Genesis 2, 8 to 9, this is what it says. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this was paradise. It was sort of a a heaven on earth, heaven meeting earth sort of reality. And then God gives Adam work and a command later in Genesis 2. This is what it says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Remember that that language and that wording. So this this is going to set up our passage for today, our main text, which is Genesis chapter 3. So please turn with me, if you brought your Bibles, to Genesis chapter 3. We'll also have it up on the screen. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, it's interesting, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reached out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man, there is so much there. So Adam and Eve, they're in this paradise state, in this beautiful garden of Eden, and then they're sent out. They are kicked out into what is effectively the wilderness outside of the garden. And so now the garden of Eden is guarded by a flaming sword. They can't go back in. And so what we know about this space that they were in was that something existed outside of the garden of Eden before the fall. We don't know what it looked like, but we do know that it was good. But when Adam and Eve sinned, when they, when they disobeyed God, in one moment, that land became a barren wilderness. The ground would produce thorns and become difficult to work. There would be added physical pain. And not to mention all of the emotional and the spiritual pain that they would have to deal with. Man, uh, imagine the relationship that Adam and Eve had before the fall. This perfect union and trust. And then after the fall, they have shame and distrust and anger and resentment and confusion. Man, their communication must have been so sweet in the garden. But then it becomes strained and difficult. Their communication with God must have been a thing of beauty in the garden. God called them by name and they knew his voice and his presence was felt with them as he walked in the garden. He personally cares for them and he, he clearly speaks to them and he lavished blessing on them. There was more than enough in the garden. They had abundance. But then when they leave the garden, they feel scarcity. They feel difficulty discerning God's voice, difficulty perceiving his presence. There is toil there. There is hardship. And why does all of this happen? So we're going to hit our text with our first question. Why did Adam and Eve enter the wilderness? Well, the easy and obvious short answer is that they disobeyed God's command here, right? He just had one command, only one to give them. Later on, the Israelites were trying to follow 10 and then 613 law codes, but Adam and Eve just had one to follow, and they couldn't. But, but there's deeper layers here to their disobedience. So Adam and Eve had a choice. They had a choice to believe God or to believe this strange serpent. So the serpent tempts Eve to doubt God. Does God actually say now, Adam and Eve, they're to be caretakers of the garden. They're to have dominion over the animals and the land. So Adam and Eve had dominion over the serpent. They should have rebuked him right away. And especially when the serpent starts talking about things that a created being in the garden should have no knowledge of. Where does the serpent get his information? Who told him that Adam and Eve's eyes would be opened and that they would be like God in knowing good and evil? And did you notice that when the serpent says that, that statement is sort of a turning point for Eve, because then she looked at the forbidden fruit with a little more curiosity after the serpent said that. And that curiosity then turns to desire. It looked good in her eyes. She saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to her eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise. 
And there's a pattern here. And I think the journey of our own disobedience often follows a similar pattern. What is that pattern? Well, number one, we are tempted. You are tempted. Look at that. Man, doesn't, doesn't that look good? And everyone has their own struggle. Everyone is, is tempted to do something maybe that they have a history with. And so Eve thought that the fruit looked good and she was tempted to eat it. And number two on this journey of disobedience is you believe a lie as if it was true. Now, no one here is going to believe an outright lie, right? If the serpent tells Eve the truth that her life is going to be drastically altered and ruined if she eats this fruit, she would have no problems to tell that serpent to go away. But she believed a lie as if it was true. And that leads to number three, you justify yourself. And man, our brains, they are so good at justifying sin, so good. And Eve thought, I want my eyes to be opened. I want to be wise. I want to be like God. I mean, God would want me to be like him, right? Why would he make this food look so delicious if he doesn't want me to eat it? And after all, I've had a long day, and I think I deserve a bite of this delicious fruit. And once we go down the I deserve path, we are sunk. We have already given in, which leads us to number four, you just can't help yourself. By the time we justify our sin, we are ready to take the action of sin. And and here's the thing, sin always looks good. And and you know what? It, It often tastes good for a fleeting moment. I bet Adam and Eve, I bet they thoroughly enjoyed that fruit for a few seconds before the consequences kicked in. And the enticing desire of sin is so strong that it kicks our brains into thinking we can't live without this sin that we desire. And that once we get the sin, then we'll be happy. So today, what are we tempted by? What, what are you tempted by? What, what lies are you believing? What are, what are you justifying in your mind? What can't you help yourself from doing or from watching or from saying or from thinking? So Adam and Eve, they fall into this repeatable pattern that we still struggle with today in our own journeys. And that fruit, it looked good in their eyes, so they ate it. But underneath the aesthetics of the fruit is a deeper layer and a much more harmful desire. And this is what it is. They wanted to be like God. Now, they conveniently forget here that they are made in the image of God, that they're given the special privilege to take care of God's magnificent garden, to converse with God, to walk alongside him in the cool of the day. All of these blessings go out the window when the serpent tempted them with this idea that they could become like God. Because when they become like God, they are effectively stealing God's glory. They wanted to steal God's glory. To steal God's glory is a serious offense. It's like a massive slap in the face. It's like saying, God, everything that you have done for us is not enough. We want more. We want to be you. And sin always tempts us 
to want more. We never have enough according to the enticing desires of sin. Sin is always about more. You crave more, and I crave more. And you know what I'm craving? The glory of God. I crave the glory of God. I want to be like God. And even today, sometimes we take credit for things that God has done. And man, to my shame, I have attempted to steal glory from God and take credit for things that only God has done. And we are still tempted oftentimes to do that today. And so where does this sinful temptation come from? Who or what is this weird serpent in Scripture? Have, have any of you ever heard a, a real serpent talk to you in real life? Me neither. Now, theologians have speculated all kinds of things about who or what this serpent is in the garden. And if you struggle with the idea of a talking serpent in Scripture, I totally get it. Some people immediately discount the Bible once the talking animals start, right? So in this case, people only make it three chapters in. And so what do we do with this? Well, some think that the whole story is an allegory or or a myth, but Jesus often quotes Genesis, and he doesn't do so in an allegorical or mythological way. There, There are some who think that it wasn't an actual serpent, but maybe it's more like a vision of a serpent that both Adam and Eve could see and hear, kind of like an evil angel. There are some that think it was an actual serpent, maybe with a moving mouth, kind of like the donkey that talks at the end of uh, Numbers chapter 22. Some think that maybe animals were just able to talk in the garden, kind of like Chronicles of Narnia. So Adam and Eve, they weren't freaked out when this serpent started talking. Others think that maybe it's an actual serpent, but that he was possessed by an evil being. Now, did any of you just check out here? All right, I'm out. I'm out. That's enough kooky talk for me, right? My, my uncle uh, was telling me one time as he was watching The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, um, he was on board, he said somewhat, until the trees started talking. Once the trees started talking, he thought, I'm out. I, I just can't get over talking trees. It's, it's too unbelievable. And so maybe, maybe that's you with a talking serpent, Maybe it's just too unbelievable for you. And if that's you, I get it. But one of the things that we need to keep in mind whenever we talk about the Garden of Eden is that we honestly have very little idea of what it was like. We have these limited descriptions in Genesis, but here is something obvious that's probably going to knock you off your chair. Nobody in this room was there, right? There are only two people in the history of existence who ever were in the Garden of Eden. The rest of us just have to try to imagine what it was like. So the creator of the universe could have allowed a serpent to speak on its own in the garden. He could have. Now, my question, though, is why? Why is this serpent tempting Adam and Eve to disobey? One of the privileges that humans get is we get the ability that God gave us to choose. And God gives us this privilege. He doesn't give animals that same privilege. So this serpent likely would not have dreamed up this scheme all on his own, despite being cunning. So where does this evil scheme come from? If the garden is filled with good, why does evil show up? How does it get there? Well, we read in Scripture that there's another set of created beings who are also given a choice to obey God or to disobey God. And they're called the angels. 
Now, again, we don't have a lot of information about them either. We have no backstory for them. We don't know when they were created. We don't know uh, how some of that works in the spiritual realm. But we do know that some of them rebelled against God. And they're thrown out of their own version of the Garden of Eden down to earth. So at some point between in the beginning God and male and female, he created them. God creates angels and there was a spiritual battle that happened. So we have these two planes of existence. We've got a spiritual world and a physical world. And God is spirit. The angels are spirit. They don't have physical forms. We can't see them. But some of them can make appearances, like the angel Gabriel does to Joseph and Mary. And we talked about that in our Christmas series. And and some of those angels were taken by this seductive choice to be like God and to disobey him. And what they did was they chose not to follow God, and they are kicked out of this heavenly space, and they're cast down to earth. And these become known as demons, and they follow one leader, and he's known by many names, the devil, Satan, the evil one. In the book of Revelation, though, it's interesting that this accuser, evil one, devil, Satan, is also known as that ancient serpent, which, uh, keep that in your mind, that's kind of interesting. We see in the New Testament that demons have the ability to possess beings, even to speak audibly. Remember when Jesus encounters a man who is filled with demons? Jesus speaks with these demons, and these demons speak back. They were possessing a human, but then when Jesus rebukes them, they ask to possess animals. And so they leave the man, and they enter a massive herd of pigs, And so we know that demons have the ability to possess animals and to speak audibly, but there's more. In 2 Corinthians 11, 14, Paul says that Satan has the ability to disguise himself, even to take on the false form of an angel of light. And there's even more than that. In Ezekiel 28, 13 to 14, we'll look at this on the screen. This likely describes the fall of Satan when it says, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. It goes on to say, On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the days you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor, I cast you to the ground. There's a famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, and he said this, an immaterial spirit must be invisible, and therefore he must embody himself in some way or other before he can be seen. That Satan has power to enter into living bodies is clear, for he did so upon a very large scale with regard to men in the days of Christ. Being compelled to have an embodiment, the master evil spirit perceived the serpent to be at that time among the most subtle of all creatures. And therefore he entered into the serpent as feeling that he would be most at home in that animal. It's interesting. Now, Genesis 3 doesn't tell us that the serpent is Satan, 
But I think a compelling case can be made that the serpent is either Satan in disguise and he is speaking to Adam and Eve in their thoughts, or he is Satan possessing a serpent and then audibly speaking through it. The point is not how Satan does it, because the Bible doesn't tell us that. The point is what the serpent says. And the serpent here is also given this punishment, which likely doesn't fit just a lowly, simple serpent animal. Some have speculated, actually, that serpents in the garden were different than snakes today. Maybe they had legs. Maybe they had wings, even. And maybe they were more majestic and noble creatures, kind of like dragons. And then after the fall, they had to crawl on their belly and eat dust. Again, we don't know what they were like then. But the serpent is told this, too, that his offspring is eventually going to be crushed and defeated by the offspring of a woman. Simple snakes are not going to be defeated in in this way. So this proclamation from God must be for another being like Satan, the evil one, the very first liar. Satan is the father of glory thieves. He wanted to be God by tricking Adam and Eve. He would effectively be a God over them. They would follow him And they would follow his words instead of following God's words. And so Satan is victorious here on that day in Genesis 3. But God prophesies that one day there's an offspring of the woman who is going to crush him. Some of Satan's biggest victories today, hear me on this, happen when people believe his lies as if they were true. And his biggest deception is that people are believing these lies as if they are true and they have no idea where they are coming from and that they are coming from the logic of this serpent. Did you notice that the serpent here only talks to Eve? Why? Remember at the the beginning when we read Genesis 2, God gives that command to Adam. He doesn't give it to Eve. Eve hadn't been created yet. And so the assumption is that Adam at some point tells Eve the command, and maybe Adam adds to it, or he doesn't give her the command exactly as God gave it to him. Either way, Eve receives this command secondhand. And so the serpent is really clever here because he must know that Eve somehow has power over Adam, that if he can convince Eve that Adam is going to give in to. And so there are times in our lives where our greatest treasure ends up becoming our greatest temptation. And Adam treasured Eve. He even writes her a little poem at the end of Genesis 2 and verse 23. Now, it's a, it's a short poem, probably not the greatest piece of poetry ever written. But he's clearly enamored with Eve, and he seems to treasure her, and he wants her to be delighted, maybe even more than he wants to obey God. Sometimes also, our greatest strength is our greatest source of temptation. Adam and Eve are given the beauty and the ability to choose, to have a choice, a will and a voice of their own. What a gift. And so Satan attacks their greatest gift, their greatest strength, the ability that they had to choose. And so why does God here allow Satan to do any of this in the garden? Why does he even plant the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? Well, clearly, none of us know the mind of God, so I'm not going to pretend to completely know all of his reasoning here. But I do think that one reason that God plants the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he gives them access to it, warns them not to eat it, 
gives them the opportunity to choose it or to reject it. One of the reasons that God does that has to do with love. Everything up until the creation of human beings has a limited capacity to love, a limited capacity to know God. Stars and sand and seas, they don't have any capacity for love. Trees and flowers, they have no capacity for love or knowledge of God. And you could argue that there's a limited version of love that exists in the animal kingdom, but animals, to the best of our knowledge, have almost no capacity to understand or to love God. They also, they don't question their existence. They don't look for any meaning or purpose. So God makes one creature in his likeness and puts his image in them. And God loves these creatures and calls them humans, and he loves them with this incredible love. It's a love that Adam and Eve are never going to understand, but since humanity is made in the image of God, humanity has the capacity to love in a similar way that God does. So if you're God, how would you know that these humans that you just created are going to return your love back to you? How would you know? Well, they'd have to volunteer it, right? Because If the love is forced, it's not love. God, he could have programmed humans to love, but but the manufactured love would be hollow and empty because it wasn't made by a free choice by the humans. And so God allows these humans to choose. They can choose to love God or not. God gives them this opportunity here to prove who or what they love. They have a big opportunity to prove that they love God just by doing this simple thing that he asked them to do, not eating of this one tree. They had thousands of other trees, seemingly, that they could have chose. And love is a choice. It's willingly offered. It's volunteered without coercion. So when my wife asks me to do something, I want to do it because I love her. And I love opportunities to show her how much I love her unless she asks me when I'm watching the Huskers. Just kidding, sort of. Uh, So Satan is in the garden as a tempter because God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. So obedience here, hear me on this, obedience to God is not a painful exercise in giving up something that we want to do. It's an opportunity to show God how much we love him. Do I love God more than whatever I desire? Obedience to God through Scripture is shown to be more of an act of worship and love than one of forced compliance. And God's not going to force you to obey. Adam and Eve had a choice. They could demonstrate their love for God by rejecting the serpent's proposal, or they could reject their love of God and demonstrate their love for whatever looks good in their own eyes. And so unwillingly here, they obey the serpent, which is similar to demonstrating love for this serpent, and they love the words of the serpent more than they love the words of God. And so they worshiped effectively this serpent instead of worshiping God. Now, they didn't think that in their minds. In their minds, they think, We are becoming like God, but that is exactly the mentality of Satan as he is kicked out of heaven. So what this does is it sets up a massive struggle between humans and the logic of this serpent going forward. What is humanity going to choose, the way of the serpent or the way of God? So we know how they entered into the wilderness outside of Eden. So now, number two, what did they learn? In general, I think... 
They learn that disobeying God has painful consequences, that following the logic of the serpent leads to tragedy, and that doing whatever you want, whenever you want, is not as good as it sounds. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But what do we learn from them? Number three, I I think one thing that we get to learn right away is that God is serious about his commands. So when God says something, it's not a suggestion. And when we violate his commands, there are serious consequences. But even so, what we can learn from this is that God actually still takes care of Adam and Eve. Even though they disobeyed him, isn't that amazing? God still took care of them. He still provides clothing for them. It's much better clothing than that, those fig leaves that they're trying. He, he does this for them as they disobey. As they're entering into the wilderness, God is still taking care of them and providing for them. And in doing so, he goes with them into the wilderness state. He still provides for them and offers to bless them with future children. So Genesis 3.15 says that they're going to have offspring. And it also provides hope here. Genesis 3.15 provides hope that one day this evil will end. One day there's going to be a human who is going to love God more than he loves the serpent. He's going to defeat all of the temptations of evil. He'll be victorious over sin. This provides hope. But practically, I think we learn something about ourselves. We can deceive ourselves with our desires. Things that look good in our eyes are not always good for us. They may taste good for a minute, but they will have lasting consequences. Things that look good in our eyes, they're they're kind of like an itch. And when you have a really strong itch, your entire body and your mind, it seems bent on scratching that itch, and it sort of takes everything within you not to scratch it, right? And when you give in to the scratch, what happens? Are you satisfied? No, the itch continues, and you need and want to scratch again, and more often, and it still doesn't go away, and eventually you can scratch so much that you leave a mark, maybe even a scar, You scratch until it hurts. This is the downward spiral of sin. Scratching our itches until they hurt. And the temporary relief here is not worth the long-term pain. Yet it just seems so enticing. Sometimes when we look at, at our current situation, we start to think things like, man, my life would be better if I was in a different situation. We look around and we see forbidden fruit everywhere. Everyone else seems to be having a better life than I am having. My life would be better if I was married to a different person. My life would be better if I had a drink right now. My life would be better if I had more. There's a couple that I knew in a a previous place that they thought their life would be better with more, a a little more. And they were in charge of this treasury as a nonprofit organization. They did the books. So the temptation to cook the books was a little too strong, so strong that they gave in. And like a scratch, they just gave in a little at a time and sort of started taking a couple hundred dollars here, a thousand dollars there. And they justified it, right? Like they they wanted to have a little more to give to their kids and to take nice vacations. What's so wrong with wanting to spend quality time with your family? The end justifies the means, right? But they eventually stole $24,000 in 25 months. 
scratching one itch at a time. And now they are divorced and they're in legal trouble and they are publicly humiliated. Adam and Eve are also the first to try this classic human response to problems, which is blame shifting. It was the serpent's fault. It was Eve's fault. And everyone kind of points fingers instead of taking responsibility. And we still do that today, right? God, I'd be a better husband if my wife was different. God, I'd be a better wife if my husband was different. God, I'd be a better husband if my kids weren't so screwed up. God, I'd be a better kid if my parents weren't so messed up. God, I'd be a better employee at my job if my boss or my coworkers weren't so dumb. Maybe none of you say that. No one likes to take responsibility for their side of things. And this is our life in the wilderness. Now, it's crucial to remember, and please, please hear me on this. Temptation didn't send Adam and Eve into the wilderness. Giving in to temptation did. Now, you may look at your life and think, I'm in the wilderness, but I don't feel like I've given in to temptation. Well, join us for the rest of this series, and we'll see that there's a couple ways that you can enter the wilderness. So this week, Adam and Eve proved that giving in to temptation led to entering the wilderness, and sadly for them, there was no going back. They couldn't go back to the Garden of Eden. So number four, how did they get out? Did they get out? Are they stuck? Technically, no. They will never again enter the Garden of Eden. They're cursed to wander the earth outside of paradise until they die. And honestly, that's where we are today. We exist in this sort of in-between state. We're in between the Garden of Eden and we are in between heaven. And this middle state that we are in is not paradise, though I think we want it to be. Some have said that those of us who are on this earth who follow Jesus are as close to hell as we will ever get. But those of us who are on this earth who reject Jesus are as close to heaven as they will ever get. There is something inside of us that longs for this paradise, that longs for this God-given abundance and provision instead of feeling like the world is full of scarcity and that we just have to steal or kill or destroy just to provide for ourselves. There is something inside of us that desires for harmonious relationships with other people and with God, and these are all good desires. But after the curse of Genesis 3, we're now living with another set of desires, Desires to take whatever looks good in our eyes, which leads to further toil and wandering and hardship in the wilderness. And as Adam and Eve leave the garden, they leave with tremendous loss and sadness. They knew what they were leaving, that they'd never again regain that place. And so going forward, God promised both of them that they're going to endure pain, painful work, painful childbirth. And so they leave the garden with an entirely different set of expectations than they had when they were in. In the garden, they expected everything to be good, right? God is good. Everything around us is good. That is their baseline. And so anything outside of that baseline was an aberration, and it was a shock to the system. Bad things shouldn't happen in a good garden. But now, as they leave the garden, their expectations change. They expect things to be hard. This is the new baseline, Life will be tough going forward. God said so. God is still good, but things around us aren't. 
So they expect hardship now as their baseline. And if they experienced any good, the good is now the aberration. And so they have an opportunity to expect things to be hard, but now to be thankful for the good. Sometimes I think we can get into a a paradise mentality while we are still on earth. At least I can. I tend to think that my baseline should be that everything should be good. God is good. Everything around me should be good. And so when anything is bad, I freak out or I blame other people or I blame God. But in the wilderness, our expectations change. When we're in the wilderness, water is scarce, right? But water is also a life-giving resource. It's a life-giving blessing. And so in the wilderness, when we finally encounter water, we think, oh, thank you, God. Finally found water. We can finally quench our thirst. Praise God for this little bit of water that we have received. But then when we exit the wilderness and we get back into our normal, water is taken for granted as a provision. And we think, water again? Gross. What else do we have to drink? And the wilderness changes us. People either thrive in it and after it, or they crumble. The wilderness refines who we are and what we appreciate. And you can bet that Adam and Eve were extremely grateful when they finally found water outside of Eden. I bet they were thrilled when they cultivated fruit trees to produce edible fruit for them. I'm sure the fruit was not as good as it was in the garden, but they're likely thankful for it in a way that they weren't in the garden. And so that is our hope, that we would have eyes to see not what is tempting, but eyes to see what is actually good. That when we experience some good, when we are in our wilderness, that we now know who to thank. That every drink of water, every tiny provision is precious instead of taking all of those things for granted. That now we realize that the wilderness is not an uninhabited space, that God is there covering us. He is providing for us. He is watching over us, even blessing us. And, And just because we mess up in sin doesn't mean that God abandons us. God is not a God of abandonment. He didn't abandon Adam and Eve. He covers them with warm clothing, and he still cares for them. And so if you are in it right now, here in the middle of the wilderness, ask God to show you where the water is. God, where is the water? Ask him to help you understand why you are there and show you where you can find a drink. Next week, we're going to look at Cain and Abel. Why was, why was Abel's sacrifice accepted? Why was Cain's rejected? Why does Cain enter the wilderness and what does he do when he gets there? Come back next week and we're going to continue our journey out of the wilderness. Let's pray. God, thank you for not being a God of abandonment, for for still caring for us even after we disobey. God, I pray that for those of us who who are struggling with temptation, we're we're struggling to give in. God, I, I pray that you will help us to see that you are better than any of the sin that we could give into. God, uh, please help us to draw water from your well and, and not from living water and not from water that is so temporary and doesn't satisfy long term. God, I pray for those of us who don't know you, who have never 
bowed their knee to Jesus, that maybe today would be that day that they finally surrender. God, I pray that you will help us here and now to see where you are in the middle of our wilderness. God, it's so hard when we're here in the middle of our wilderness wandering. There's pain and toil and suffering, but you know it all so well because you experienced it when you came down to earth and became a human. Jesus, thank you for covering us with your blood, for covering us so that we would no longer be held accountable for our own sin, that you took that for us. Help us to to receive that as our blessing and our salvation today. Help us to see what you want us to see while we are in the middle of the wilderness. It's in your mighty name that we pray.